0: I'm Devorah Vail. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Hey, good morning, ladies. How is everybody doing? I hope you're all well. I hope you're all on a high from Shavuos. Of course, we've been, you know, counting the days, and then it came, and the mitzvah of the day was really to feel that uh, we have committed ourselves to following the dictates of the Torah, connecting ourselves to the giver of the Torah, and recognizing that the Torah, Eitz chayim hi la macha that the Torah is, the, is a way of life, it's more than a way of life, it's life itself. As it says, Bacharta you should choose life. And of course, life is always associated and connected for the Jewish people with holding on tight to Torah. So I would just want to talk a little bit more about one of the concepts of Shavuos that probably, you know, if you were in Shul or you were discussing it around your table, maybe it came up. And that's the idea of Na'aseh V'nishma the two words that we said as a klal, as a people, as a unified people, um, when Moshe offered us the Torah, of course, as the intermediary, of between, intermediary between us and Hashem, and the incredible thing was that the Jewish people all said together, not nishma, gemar and shabbos, says that these words had a tremendous effect in Shemayin. Rabbi Elazer said, at the time that Israel said, we will do before they said, we will listen, a heavenly voice went forth and said of them, who revealed to my children the secret that is used by the ministering angels, that first they do, and then they listen. So, of course, this is a whole question, because normally the way people respond to any kind of command or instruction is, well, you know, if I, if I agree with it, or if I see the value in it, or if it makes sense to me, then I'll do it. But the whole idea of the fact that we said we'll do it first, and then we'll, so to speak, listen, or then we'll understand But whatever you're going to tell us, whether we understand or not, the idea is, is that we're going to do it because we know, and obviously the Jewish people understood very clearly at the time of revelation, the heavens opened up. There were all kinds of incredible natural, supernatural miracles that were taking place around them. And they saw clearly beyond the shadow of a doubt, that this was Hashem himself giving us our Torah, right? Our instructions for living. So it says here that when they said, when, when the Jewish people said, we will do and we will listen, they declared their unconditional acceptance of God's sovereignty. They were prepared to do, to carry out his every command, even before they would listen and hear exactly what those commands involved. In good times and in difficult times, in moments of ecstasy and in periods of darkness, they would faithfully hearken to God's word, confident that whatever their divine calling would be, they would be able to fulfill it. We will do it and listen, and we will listen, was an expression of eternal love and faith. And when they made this declaration, They ascended to the level of angels, even though they were still clothed in human garb. So it says that what happened when they said Na'asev and Nishma, the Medrash tells us, 600,000 angels came with crowns, and to every person among the Jewish people, they placed two crowns on their heads. One corresponded to Na'asev, and one corresponded to Nishma. So what is it about these words? Just uh, a piece of trivia on the OU stationery, the OU, the Orthodox Union stationery. They have the words on the top, na'asev nishma. And this is because these words are a symbol of Judaism. Hold on, I'm going to... And the idea is something that is very counterintuitive to us. But the idea is, is that I don't need to understand something in order to do it. My actions are not always based on my understanding. Now, of course, we're allowed to understand the mitzvot. And the more we understand the mitzvot, you know, and the more deeply we understand, the mitzvot, obviously, the more kavana we can bring to them. We are people who have an intellect, human beings, their head is at the top of their body, which indicates the fact that we have da'as, we have the ability to think and understand, as opposed to animals whose heads, generally speaking, are on the same level as their bodies. You know, somebody, uh, I think on Shibuos, I heard the idea. That's because animals live for olam haza. An animal is all instinct. An animal's whole being is devoted to survival. So the head is on the same level as the body. I asked about giraffes. <laughs> But even a giraffe, the only reason that his neck is so long and his head is so high is because his food is there on the top of the trees. That's where he gets his sustenance. But everything about an animal is just devoted to survival and olam hazeh. A human being is made with his head on the top because we are really created for olam haba, right? With the ability to choose, the ability to think, And the ability to make choices that are not only this worldly focused, go beyond just physical survival, but are focused on becoming the greatest person that we can through choosing correctly and obviously choosing our master, choosing connection to the one who will take us not only from this world, but into the next world. So as much as we're supposed to understand the mitzvot, there are certain mitzvot, of course, that we can, cannot understand. That even escaped, so to speak, the wisest of all men, Shlomo Hamelach. right? It says that he understood a lot of the hukim, the mitzvot that are supposed to be beyond human comprehension. But I think it was the para aduma, the red heifer, that they say even Shlomo Hamelach could not understand. Because obviously, if our belief and trust in Hashem is based on our limited ability to understand, then it's not really belief and trust. Belief and trust is the ability for the human being to surrender his intellect and say, obviously, I am not God. There are things that are beyond me. There are things that I will never understand. But the same God who gave me many mitzvot that I can understand, right, don't steal, don't murder, set up laws, of ju- set up courts of justice, and things that obviously make sense in terms of society functioning well. Part of emuna is that even those laws and mitzvot that I obviously will never understand, you know, why can't I wear linen and wool together? What's, what's the big deal? What's the problem? How could that be important? This is where a person who's a true ma'amin, a true believer, bows their head and says, I'm not God, God knows better, and he understands the way the world functions on a physical, on a spiritual level, and what, you know, what effect all of the mitzvot have, not only on my doing them, but on the world at large. Can everybody hear me? Because it says my, yeah, okay. So every mitzvah that we can understand, we're told still has an aspect to it that we cannot understand. For example, we all understand the mitzvah of tzedakah, that we're supposed to give a 10th to tzedakah. But we could ask the question, why a 10th? Why not a ninth? Why does it have to be a 10th? So this is always the chok part of the mitzvah. Okay, so there's a famous Gemara that talks about a man named Dama ben Nasina. Now, it's so interesting because this Gemara deals with the mitzvah of kibbutz of the aim, honoring your parents, considered to be one of the most difficult mitzvahs in the Torah. And the example that the Gemara brings down in Kedushin is the example of a non-Jew, a Gentile, named Dama Ben-Nesina, from whom we're supposed to learn how to do Kibbutz of the aim. So the Gemara says, How far does the mitzvah of honoring one's father and mother extend? Rav Ula answered them, Go and see what one idolater did in Ashkelon. And his name was Dama, son of Nesina. It once happened that the sages wanted to buy certain merchandise from Dhamma, son of Messina, at a price that would give him a profit of 600,000 gold dinars. But the key to the chest that contained the merchandise was lying under his father's pillow, and his father was sleeping at the time, and Dhamma, son of Messina, did not disturb his father. So this um, son didn't want to wake up his father because the key to the money that he needed to make this business transaction, or sorry, to the merchandise that these people wanted to buy, was actually obviously Jews that came to, to buy it, he didn't want to wake up his father. So this is very commonly one of the examples that parents give their kids you know, when they try to teach them this mitzvah of honoring them, they'll say, you know, you can't wake me up when I'm sleeping. Just like if this non-Jew knew not to wake up his father and to forego an incredible business opportunity, then call the chomer, as they say, a fortiori, how much more so should you not wake me up just to disturb my sleep? And the truth is, is it's interesting that disturbing someone's sleep is actually... Uh, a, a, a part of the mitzvah of not stealing, right? That when you steal, stealing someone's sleep is also considered stealing. But anyway, this was a chok like behavior. A chok like behavior, meaning it made no sense. Wouldn't the father have wanted him to wake him up? Wouldn't he have wanted to have these six hundred thousand, yeah, six hundred thousand gold dinars? And yet the idea is that, you know, this Gentile Dama Ben-Nasina was doing something that went against logic, but according to what he understood about the mitzvah of Kibar of the aim, he wasn't going to wake up his father. So we live in a world, however, where we very much live in a world where I'll do it when I understand it. And this has affected our mitzvah observance as well. I'm only going to do the mitzvah when I understand it. And what, what this demonstrates is a commitment not to Hashem, but a commitment to ourselves. Because on some level, we worship our intellect. But what Nasa Benishma was saying is, Hashem, we trust you so much that even if we don't understand it, we'll do it anyway. So there's a value to doing it even if you don't understand. but. There's also a value to Nishma, because if there wasn't, we would have just said nasa. we'll do it, right? But the fact that it was followed by the word "venishma, and then we'll understand it, we'll go into the details of it, we'll learn more about it. There's obviously also a value to Nishma, and that's because Judaism is an intellectual religion. We don't say just swallow it, just do it because that's the way it's done. We invite curiosity. We invite intellectual sparring, right? We're supposed to ask questions. We're supposed to understand to the degree that our intellectual abilities allow us. But of course there comes a point again where intellectually we can only go so far. And that's, again, where true emuna comes in. After all, we spend our whole lives learning Torah and trying to understand what it means. But what, and this, this class, by the way, is based on Dina Schoonmaker's class. So in our world, she says, everybody wants explanations. And it's not a good habit to say, I won't commit if I don't understand. Because sometimes in life, we have to commit, even if we don't understand. So she was talking about a certain principal in a school who was very strict, but very well loved by the girls. And the principal would say, when the girls ask lama, why? There's two types of llamas. <laughs> two types of llamas. There's two types of questioners. There's sincere questioners who ask the question because they have a real desire to understand, but then there's people who question, and I'm sure we all know these people, right? Including ourselves at times who are really questioning, not because they want to know the answer, but they want to challenge, right? They want to challenge or argue in order to be able to push away the, um, possibility of them having to comply with the demand. So even when a person asks why sincerely, it's not always good for a person to always get an explanation. Because in life, you may have to do things that you don't understand. And we see this a lot in marriage and in child rearing. There's a few examples that they give in the Torah of women who did their husband's bidding <laughs> and there's a famous pasuk that says isha keshera osa ratzon ba'ala that the kosher woman or the proper woman does the will of her husband okay now this is very interesting in light of the new book that's become all the rage in the In the Orthodox world, actually, there was an article on it in the New York Times or somewhere how many Orthodox women like the books by this woman, Laura Doyle, who wrote two books now. She wrote one called The Surrendered Wife and one called The Empowered Wife. And she herself, who was on the verge of divorce and is a religious Christian gives a lot of seminars. I have friends who were who have been therapists for years, one in particular, who absolutely loves her teachings and is now going to be using them in her social work and therapy practice because she herself believes that they work. And of course, she's been trying them on her husband and in her own home. And she's found that in terms of the Shalom Bayat, it's increased. And part of it is, interestingly, Going along with what your husband says, one of her suggestions is you're supposed to say whatever you think to your husband's suggestions to kind of give him that sense of empowerment and respect. And supposedly the payoff for saying whatever you think more often as opposed to the usual female posture, which is... "Hmm." I know, you know, I think I know better, or let me tell you where you're going wrong, or you know, etc, or half listening and not really giving you know it the weight maybe that the husband really wants you to give it. So you know, this is a very big topic of how much do you go along with your husband? Do you just say whatever you think about everything? Is this really the recipe for an incredible marriage? Or is this something that, you know, there's the right time and the right place for doing this and there are other times and places where it's inappropriate. And I wanna get to that. I'm gonna sort of deviate from this class and go there because I just uh, found an article actually with Dina Schoonmaker in it, in the Mishpacha that discusses her husband's will Insights into how we can happily follow our husband husband, without losing ourselves. I thought that might be an, uh, a topic that uh, you guys would be interested in, yes? Anyway, interesting. But let me just go on a little bit with this idea again of doing it, doing something, following, so to speak, your husband, even if you don't understand or agree necessarily. And the benefits of Naasa, Venishma. Okay. So, you know, Yael actually, it says in the Medrash and Tynus, Yael from the Tanakh won the war against Sisra. And it says about her that she was an Isha Kishera osa Ratzon Ba'ala. Again, that Pasuk, that she was a proper woman who did her husband's will. This is the source for this idea. Now, this was not a woman who was meek. This was a woman who killed this general Sisra and saved the Jewish people from disaster. I just looked at it briefly, but it says she literally slept with him seven times. We're talking about a good-faced Yaakov girl to weaken him. And then, of course, she took a peg and there's an incredible... uh, rendering of this artistically I don't know who the artist was but some great great artist from the middle ages who depicts the scene of Yael taking a tent peg and killing Sisra. so she was no pushover and yet it's from her that we learn again that a kosher woman a proper woman does the will of her husband interesting okay there's another story in the Dharam In the Gemara in 66B, one second here, another woman who you could call the modern day or the olden day Amelia Bedelia. And I actually thought of that myself, but then I came across an article about this Gemara where it said uh, an Amelia Bedelia moment in the Gemara. But anyway, it's a story, the Gemara cites an incident where there was a certain Babylonian who went up to Eretz Yisrael and married a woman there. Now, it doesn't say it here, but the idea is, is that they didn't speak the same language. They spoke different dialects and they couldn't understand each other. So he said to her, cook me two lentils, cook some lentils for me. And she cooked exactly two lentils, just like Amelia Bedelia would have done. Right? And he got very angry with her on the following day so that she would not repeat what she had done. He said to her. Cook a guriva a seah for me, intending a large amount. She cooked an actual seah for him, far more than what one person could ever eat. He said to her, "Go and bring me two butsine, intending small gourds, as small gur- gourds are, in the Ameri- in, is what that means in the Ar- Aramaic dialect." Instead, she went and brought him two lamps which are called butsene in the Aramaic dialect spoken in Eretz Yisroel, as opposed to in Babylonia. Okay, now he was really angry. He was getting nowhere with this wife. And in anger, he said to her, go and break those lamps, what she understood as lamps, on the head of the bava. So bava means a gate in the American, sorry, in the Aramaic dialect spoken in Babylonia she didn't recognize this word and at that time there was a great sage who was a uh, Talmud of Shammai as in terms of Hillel and Shammai and his name was Bava Ben Buta and he was sitting as a judge at the gate so she went and broke these two lamps on his head Since his name was Baba, and her husband told her to take them to Baba and break them there. And he said to her, what are you doing? What is this that you have done, this great sage? And she said to him, well, this is what my husband commanded me to do. And Baba replied, he said, because you fulfilled your husband's desire, he gave her a bracha. He said, may Hashem bring forth from you two sons corresponding to these two candles or these two lamps like Bava and Buta. So you should have two sons who are as great as I am. He was, of course, one of the great sages of that time. And this is the bracha that he gives gives this woman, Amelia Bedelia, the first Amelia Bedelia, the Jewish. See, everything comes from us. (laughs) Anyway, this is the bracha that he gives her for doing the will of her husband. Okay, And the fact was that she did it, obviously, without even understanding why. I mean, to any normal person, no matter what, going to break these lamps on the head of the greatest sage in Israel, obviously, unless she was completely not with it, which the Gemara does not say, she did this purely out of wanting to do what her husband tells her. Okay, so one of the ways that we can um, apply this, Rabbi Friedman says, is in application in raising children. Well, this Rabbi Friedman is a rabbi in Israel who wrote a very large safer on raising children that's very, very popular. And one of the concepts that he writes about is the concept of na'asev and nishma, to use this concept in parent-child relationships. Especially today, Parents make a mistake and think that they have to explain why they're asking their child to do something. You know, we all know, and I'm sure you came from the same generation as I did, and I'm sure it was even more like that in generations before ours, where, you know, there was an unwritten and unspoken law that you do it because I said so, right? I mean, there is no explanation, and there doesn't need to be an explanation. Because I said so is perfectly enough for the child to do what he's told, you know? And I once read somewhere that, you know, however that generation may have erred in bringing up their children, whatever they did and whatever they said, they said with tremendous confidence because I said so, because that's the way it is. And he says that today, you know, people might do things better in certain areas, but everything they do, they do it with a lack of confidence, with a, I don't know if this is going to destroy my child's self-esteem, you know, I've got to be careful that I keep their self-esteem intact, I have to say it this way and not that way, and so you know, part of the hesitation that they did not have at all. They didn't read all the, the parenting books. They didn't go to all the parenting experts. You know, we might make those mistakes and err in terms of our lack of confidence or our tentativeness on the worry of destroying our child's self-esteem. And this is basically the idea that this rabbi is putting forth. He says that, you know, this is a mistake when you think you have to explain everything to your children. You know, even saying something like, I'm really tired. I didn't sleep well last night. Do you think you could set the table for me? Could you set the Shabbos table? Or he says it in a different way. Even if you put a positive spin on it, like it's such a big mitzvah for you to set the Shabbos table. How would you like to do that for me? So even selling it that way, he says, is not good. Nasa and means the best way to get the table set is to say, could you please set the table? And interestingly, even in these marriage books, this is also supposed to work with husbands. Instead of a preamble and a whole, you know, essay on why you'd like your husband to do what you'd like him to do and sort of trying to, you know, come to it in a very sort of roundabout way. The best way is in a direct, non-complicated, simple way. You get better compliance when you don't give reasons. Otherwise, you give other people a guilt trip. You know, please do it. I'm tired. So, Dina Schoonmaker asked the question, why do you feel that you have to explain yourself again to your child? Usually because you feel you want to be inclusive. You think you're explaining to be educational, democratic, but all your nice reasons is not the way the child receives it. Okay, and I think this is true of spouses too. The child views you as apologetic, insecure. And maybe if you have to justify yourself, you're probably not correct. You don't have the confidence that a parent is supposed to have. And a child senses a weakness. And like she says, we do this with husbands too. Can you please do this? I'm so tired. I have a headache. The kids drove me crazy today. And the husband feels guilted into it. It's better to just ask without the blah, 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 blah. And so the idea is that we're just supposed to ask simply, can you do this? Most of what we want people to do is not rocket science. It doesn't really need an explanation. By not explaining, the child or the spouse will ask the question to himself. If I have to do this, you know, and if somebody asks you why, you can even say back to them, well, what do you think? You know, so you're putting it back on the person. If you talk too much about it, you've taken off their ability to sort of process that they need to do this for you. Hi, can you hear me again? Is it okay? Yes? Sorry about that. I don't know what's going on. It's interesting, you know, I I, I was just reading about husbands in particular um, and it was an idea that I was talking about actually, we went away for Shabbos, but, and maybe I've spoken about it before but, you know, according to uh, The Torah idea of the relationship between a husband and wife or men and women. Men are the givers. And women are the receivers. And as much as, you know, women will say to you, what do you mean they're the givers? We're the ones that are giving all day long. We're the ones whose whole life is a life of giving, Mm -hmm. right? Having children, running a house, making meals, thinking about all the pragmatics of life. But actually, according to Judaism, the mystical idea of Judaism, and of course, even our biology, men are the givers and women are the receivers. And I just read an incredible idea. I think uh, I don't know where I read it. Yeah, I think it was in another shear by Dina Schoonmaker, where she said, as much as men want to give, they have a conflict And it's rooted in Gan Eden, in the fact that the the first time Adam listened to his wife, (laughs) Chava, it did not turn out well. I just love this idea, right? It did not turn out well, not only not for him, but for the entire world and the future of mankind. So this is where the tension that men have when women say something very simple, like, could you change the light bulb, you know? And so what, and I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I'm sure anybody who's married knows this and has seen this with their husbands. So the way they deal with this tension is they'll say something like, not now, <clears throat> okay? I'll do it in five minutes. I'll do it later. What's the problem with it being there for another hour or whatever? And, you know, you're trying to get the house cleaned up for Shabbos. And it's like, today's the day that we're putting everything in its proper place, right? And if you mentioned it to your husband, do you think, you know, we can put that away before Shabbos or whatever? It's always why or not now or when I want to, I'll do it, Right. So it seems to go completely, it's totally antithetical to this idea that all a man wants to do is give, right? Happy wife, happy life. And of course, when our husbands comply with our simple requests, without nagging, because none of us nag, right? We would be so happy, you know? It's like uh, Rabbi Aryeh Pabensky, who was a marriage rabbi and used to travel around. You could Google him on video in his younger years. He's very good. He has short little videos. But one of them he calls, it's not about the light bulb. You know, he tries to explain to men, it's not about the light bulb. It's just about, you know, the wife saying something and the husband doing it and the dividends that he will receive for that are so incredible in terms of her joy and happiness, but yet there's so much tension and conflict so often when we even give a direct um, desire or instruction. And again, it's so interesting that it comes from a man's desire to give, but experiencing this conflict that, again, goes all the way back to the last time I listened to her. It didn't turn out well. Last time, meaning way back in the garden. So that Hashem created this kind of conflict. So the question is, how do you, how do you override it? Or how do you get through it? So obviously, one technique in marriage is that when they actually do do it, whenever it might be, we make a big fuss about it, Right? We say, oh, I really loved that you put away that thing or that I really appreciated that. You know, it makes me feel so good when everything is in its place. So we make a big deal after the fact so that hopefully um, the joy, because truly a husband's desire is to make his wife happy, right? This is also this giving and this desire to make his wife happy is very much uh, a natural desire. So when we help them by receiving, and this is our part and our role, and this is difficult for us, okay? Because women are naturally critical and perhaps Jewish women are even more critical (laughs) because we have very high standards and expectations of how we expect our children and our husbands and everybody around us to perform. You know, so our challenge and our attention is in our ability to receive graciously, even when it's not packaged or coming in the way that we would have liked it or we would have wanted it or we would have felt was even better, right? I can give, you know, very simple examples of if you send your husband out to the grocery store And you know what frazzled husbands with the list from their wife look like in grocery stores. Some men out there look very confident. They look like they know how to pick out tomatoes and cucumbers. And you wonder why you didn't get one of those husbands, right? (laughs) But I think that most women, whatever their husbands bring them home, they're always going to find something wrong with it. You know, did you not notice that these tomatoes are mushy, that when you touch them, they're not firm, that they're going bad, that they're whatever it is, right? Did you not notice that these bananas had were green, totally green, like they're not going to be ready till next week, whatever it is, right? The point is, is that when we do this, we short circuit a man's desire to give it's another way that we by not receiving graciously and saying thank you so much even if to ourselves we're rolling our eyes and going how could they pick this out did they not notice these flowers were almost dead I don't know how much they paid for this but you know what what's wrong he has a good IQ he has eyes he can see you know I don't understand okay But this is our challenge, the same way that they have this challenge of wanting to give. But messing it up because their ego says in five minutes or later or when I'm ready. Right. Even though the benefits of doing it right away are so enormous, we mess up because we don't realize the benefits of us receiving whatever they want to give us in a gracious ladylike, sweet fashion encourages them to want to give more and more, okay, and want to give in the way that, you know, we can actually make suggestions once we've made them feel safe about their ability to give, because when a man feels like, I can't do it right, Or whatever I bring you, it's not good enough. Or, you know, there's always something wrong with what I'm giving you. We all know men immediately turn inward. They give up. And we're like, come on, can't you take some constructive criticism? Don't you want to know how to pick out a watermelon, you know? What if, don't you want to know this? Chachma? My girlfriends would like to know, right? They wouldn't get upset. But for a man, again, it's like you're telling me I don't know how to give. And so I'm not going to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop trying. And our challenge as women, again, is to be able to receive in a way that keeps them wanting to give, even if what they've given us is less than what we would have liked or less than perfect i remember a friend of mine i learned this lesson as a young wife and this was a woman who you know came was came from a lot from means and i once mentioned to her something about a gift that my husband gave me and i didn't like it and i told them or i told them what i'd rather have and she said to me If I would do that to my husband, that would be the last time I would ever get a gift. I would ever get anything. I mean, she was basically teaching me, you never do that. You never do that. Okay. So, I mean, whatever. There was obviously a disconnect in the generation gap between me and probably my mother would know know the same thing. But, you know, with the feminist revolution and women asserting themselves and not really and, and putting men down as much as possible in order to assert their superiority or equality or more than equality, I think that a lot of those Fakhmas, you know, were lost, especially in this generation of Magia, etc. et cetera. Anyway, that's just a little side point of na'aseh. Maybe we could say na'aseh is, I accept what you want to give, Even if I don't understand it, right? Even if it makes no sense why you would have bought that or brought that home or thought that I would like that. Okay. And the nishma is understanding that when we do that, the benefits are so great when we submit, so to speak, our intelligence, submit all of that for the sake of you know, the relationship. And I guess we could apply it here, you know, too, back to Harsinai to our relationship with Hashem, that the connection that we gain with Hashem in the mitzvot that we don't understand are far, far greater than the ones that we could have deduced as a society without God in the picture at all, right? Many of the mitzvot are mitzvot called mishpatim, right? Mitzvot that are logical, that human beings would come up with in any society, whether or not there's a creator, whether or not there's a commander, human beings would have come up with this themselves. So the mitzvot that are beyond our comprehension, where we say these don't make sense, I'm only going to do the ones that make sense, that work for me that, you know, give me a certain satisfaction because I understand them. This is not the, this is not the mitzvot that create the deepest connection with Hashem. It's the ones where we have to submit, to bow our heads and to say, I accept, I will do. And then perhaps I will understand and gain the benefits afterwards. And again, we can take this back to the husband-wife. The whole dance of this giving and receiving. Where our job is to receive, you know, so to speak. The receiving of the Torah without any questions. Without any, uh, uh, yeah, but, you know, if you would have given it this way, or you would have given it with, in ways that I could have understood it and appreciated it, then I would receive it. But no, the same dynamic of I'll submit, I'll accept, and then the benefits will come after because God willing, just like in a marriage relationship, the husband wants to give more and more often. And then he becomes interested in what is it that you would like to receive because really I'd like to give you exactly in the way and the thing that you want and that becomes the deeper and more you know uh, the connection that makes everybody happy right the giver's happy because he's doing it on a higher level he's doing it and the receiver is happier because she's actually getting what she wants when she wants and it's a process and it's a a changing of a dance. And sometimes in many relationships, uh, you know, we all do, we all have a dance and in many relationships, the dance becomes habitual. You know, he brings something, she says, ah, you know, go back and get the other, whatever it is. And the level of enjoyment and the depth of the relationship becomes stult- stint, st- what's the word, becomes um, stuck because of the fact that, again, it, the, the, the new dance demands a certain um, ability to bow one's head and say, thank you so much, and understand how much benefit comes from just doing that. Even if in our minds or in our heads, we're rolling our eyes and saying, I don't understand this how could this be? Didn't I tell you to get three zucchinis and, you know, and how come I've got 10 zucchinis and I didn't get any pepper, you know, whatever it is, right? Okay. I don't know if you can relate to this, but for me, I can relate to this. Okay. Um, Let's see how we're gonna, where we're gonna go with this. Okay. You know, I'd like to look at this article since I did print it out and maybe we'll just take a little, bit of a look here in terms of again more about the role between husband and wife so they mentioned in this article and it's called her husband's will the international bestseller the surrendered wife which encourages women to say whatever you think to all their husband's suggestions no matter how harebrained so is the role of a jewish wife to be a yes woman a yes man a yes woman Agreeing to anything her husband proposes. Or is she meant to be an equal partner in running the home and rearing the children? So uh, Dina Schoonmaker says in this article, If you look at the Torah sources, it's true that the husband is the head of the household. But the wife's role is not minimal. She Mm -hmm. also has an important spiritual role far greater than just keeping house. And acquiescing to whatever her husband suggests. In the Garden of Eden, there was no cooking or or laundry. So it must be that there's something more that the wife brings to the table. The Maharal says that Chava was created from a hidden organ. And therefore, she's the master of the hidden reality of what we would call Bina. Because she can read between the lines. And she gives the example, and I think I've given it in other contexts, but she says when a child complains of a stomach ache, the stereotypical male response might be a visit to the GI, but the woman's Bina sniff can, can sniff out that the child's anxiety and the reason for the stomach ache may be over a social issue in school, perhaps the kids being bullied for example. It says none of the animals could be a partner to Adam. He needed somebody with thought and speech. Though Hashem could have matched Adam with a gazelle or a water buffalo, he knew that Adam needed a helpmate who could impart valuable insight into his decisions, but in a decidedly feminine way. Sorry, I didn't really get much of a chance to read all of this. There were just certain things that popped up that I. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dina Schoonmaker suggests that the time to really um, go along with your husband's will, the easiest time to accommodate your husband are when your wishes are not that different or when the question is fairly inconsequential. For example, which restaurant to go to or which recliner to buy. She gives an example of a girl named Honey whose mother had always taught her that the word kala actually means a daughter-in-law in Hebrew. And so her role as a bride should be to integrate into her husband's family culture so that she truly feels like she belongs to them. She should feel more like her husband's relative than her father's, was how her mother put it. So the example she gives is a few months after the wedding, her husband gently asked her, if she could dress a little more stick on Friday nights, Honey was perplexed because she always wore beautiful outfits and shaitos on Friday night. And what she, so he thought she thought, what more did he want? So they quickly realized that his mother typically wore an elegant robe and a fancy hair covering to the suda, and that was what was considered kavod Shabbos. So that's what she now wears, okay? Um, Anyway, it's a whole article basically on when do you give in and when do you stand ground? And one of the main points here, and there are many different points, is that if you can give in on things that don't matter that much, that really aren't that important, then it gives you, so to speak, um, money in the bank. To be able to stand up and counter things that are more important, things that are bigger issues. Because you'll be taken more seriously too than if you're always squabbling over things that aren't really that important. Okay, so you know what, just to wrap up, again, back to this idea of nishma. So the Nishma part is also that when it comes to parenting or spousing or or being a spouse, there's nothing wrong with after the person has complied with your wishes to do the Nishma part. And the Nishma part is praising the person for having done what we asked them to do. And we all like to hear about what I did and why what I did was so great. Because the Sefer HaChinach ultimately does explain all the mitzvahs. Even if we're already doing it, it's nice to go back and understand what the mitzvah is all about, and it gives the mitzvah more geschmack. It gives it more taste. Okay. Huh. Now we have to recognize that the reason why not a second be so difficult is because we have a a a Hara that always says, nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me what to do. And we know this principle of greater is the one who is commanded and does than the one who is not commanded and does. As soon as a person is told to do something there's a natural reaction, a reflex reaction of either I'll do it when I understand it or when it's good for me, or I'll do it, like we said earlier, when I want to do it, not when you're telling me to do it. And for those of you who remember from a different class, there's a, there's a question that's asked in the Gemara about when the Yates comes into a person, does it come in before conception or at the moment of birth, or, or at the moment of, con- sorry, at the moment of conception, or at the moment of birth. And the rabbis say that it has to be it's at the moment of birth, because if the Yetzirah would come in during those nine months in the womb, there's no way the fetus would agree to be confined in the mother's womb for that amount of time. It would say, get me out of here. And, you know, it would be like Rifka with the twins inside of her fighting to get out long before the time of conception. So again, we have this natural reflex to say, I'll do it when I'm ready. And what we did at Harsini, we reached this level of total compliance in a positive way of understanding that we can trust the one who's giving us these commandments, and we can say, "naasat," we'll do it. We know it's good for us. We know it's coming from someone who loves us, from someone who understands the world in a way that we will never understand it. And yes, learning Torah and living Torah, we come to understand and appreciate all of the commands, the ones that are beyond our comprehension, and of course, the ones that are within our comprehension. And so, to Shem, may all of us reap the incredible blessing that comes with being a soldier in the army of Hashem and comes with the understanding that the more we do, even when we don't understand, the deeper and more real the relationship becomes. Thanks a lot for listening. This is probably gonna be the last class for the summer. But I look forward to learning with you all, God willing, again next next year or as we go into the new new year, Ezra Shem. So have a wonderful, healthy, safe, enjoyable summer. And thank, thank you so much. You. Oh, thank thank you. you so much, Devor. We'll miss you. Thank, thank you coming on week after week. Thank you so much, everybody. And I hope very to, very oh, awesome. I hope to see you here and there. Okay, well deserved rest. Thank you That's so much.